Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our fifth episode of 2023 with me, Nicholas Beard-Lumlo, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, we thought we would talk about something that almost nobody else is talking about these days. Uh, a subject arcane and, and certainly not in the news, which is artificial intelligence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> seems, seems, seems to be a Flavor good time Flavor of to the month. Flavor yes. of the month. Yeah. And, and one way to approach this that I think is probably helpful is to sort of just talk through where it comes from and what the distinctions are and how we ended up where we are today and then start from there to talk a little bit about what are the challenges when it comes to regulating mm. different kinds of technology. Yeah. Does that seem like a plan? It, it does because I think there is quite a lot of confusion as I'm very involved in debates at the moment around the UK's online safety bill right. where we're trying to regulate and a lot, a lot of that discussion is how do we make it future-proofed? How do we look forward? And of course mm -hmm. AI has come up in that. But I do think there's quite a lot of confusion still about where you draw lines between different forms of technology and they all get sort of muddled up. Right. Uh, so I think teasing that would be helpful. And Nicholas, I know you're you're the man on this. So, so, <laughs> well, I, I'll yeah. say at the outset that these are my personal views only, so you're not confused with any uh, anything else. And and I think you know as we start out, I think it's helpful to think through the history exactly. of artificial intelligence and to sort of go back to the 1950s when Alan Turing started to think about what it would mean for a machine to think and when. Um, a couple of people, John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, um, and others decided that they would solve the problem of human intelligence in a summer school. Yes. So they drafted a proposal to study the way that you could uh, program a computer to solve typical problems that a human could solve. And in that way, they wanted to uh, create artificial intelligence. So that gave us the theoretical framework. And does that, I mean, does that still hold? Does the structure that they designed hold today as as a structure that now that we have the computing power and the data is one that can deliver the hope uh, that they had for AI? To a large degree, yes, because the, the, the foundational view that they had, the vision they had is the same. But the way they thought they would reach their goal is very different from how we actually ended up with the kind of technology we have today. The people who started the early artificial intelligence project were quite convinced that they could solve this with logic. Right. You could represent human thinking with predicate logic. And, and as you did that, you would have these systems that encapsulated ways of thinking. And you, you've heard terms like expert system, for example, yes. theorem prover. And there are plenty of, of early examples of what is sometimes called GoFi, good old fashioned AI. Yeah. And GoFi was uh, essentially, uh, it was a way to think about human thinking that was highly symbolic highly mathematical and to a large degree deterministic. And this was something that the founders of AI thought for a very long time would be the right way forward. So I met, for example, with John McCarthy in 2006. Uh, one of the founding fathers and interviewed him and I had a, I had a very interesting experience interviewing him because I asked him if he wasn't disappointed 50 years on after the Dartmouth summer uh, school and he said well not really because all of the development that uh, a foundational technology encapsulates comes in the second 50 years yeah. and he was right. Yeah. If you look at what's happened, he was absolutely right. And my idea of writing an essay, essay about the sort of disappointed professor it went out the window and he, he scolded me for it quite severely. He, he wasn't disappointed. <laughs> he was not disappointed. He was quite convinced mm. that the next 50 years would mean that you had lots of breakthroughs. And he was right. But the ways those breakthroughs came, that was, was, that was fundamentally different. I, I think I remember that I, I did... Um, my master's degree in IT, late 1980s, 1990, and they, they had at Bristol Polytechnic at the time, they had a transputer centre. Transputers, right? Transputer. And oh, transputers wow. were, yes. I think, the kind of expert system you were talking about. I remember the example was that they um, had uh, steel going through a metal strip mill, yeah. uh, and humans would sit there and look at the steel, and they could spot impurities and say, that's a bad batch, send it back. Yeah. And they were trying to train computers to do the same thing. And the computers kept failing. Mm -hmm. And and I think they were trying exactly that. It was that sort of logic, you know, if A, then B, uh, then do C sort of logic that they thought they could replicate from the human looking at the steel, doing quality control, and get a transputer, yes. a clever computer, yes. the same thing. <laughs> so I, and I remember at the time they were kind of exploring it, but it turned out to be a bit of a dead end. So that, yeah. that sort of expert system, logic-based thing has has sort of 
had a sell-by date. It's expired. What have we moved on to then? What's we the moved on to, and I want to simplify hugely now, we moved yeah. on to, to what can sometimes be called probabilistic models, where you, which is you try to predict what something is. And by doing that, you're not looking for an absolute logical formulation of human knowledge. You're trying to get an approximate prediction of what something is, what a picture is of, for example. Mm-hmm. Is this a picture of a cat? Uh, what the next word in a sentence is, what the most likely translation is. And this sort of predictive model then became the dominant one through technologies like deep learning, neural networks. There's tons of different technical terms that we can apply here. But it's important to remember that, that to some degree, an interesting mental model of what artificial intelligence does is that it predicts. Yes. Because I think this is something that we'll come back to when we talk about regulating technology overall and what and how you regulate different kinds of technologies. Because there's a specific set of challenges associated with regulating predictive technologies, I think. Right. And, and is that what we do as humans? We predict? We... This, is, this, is the tr- this is both the trap, the allure, the fascination yeah. encapsulated in the concept of artificial intelligence, that there's a silent third term in the middle, artificial yeah. human intelligence. We think it's us. We think it does what we do. And to some degree, this is probably true. There's a new book out um, by a guy called Andy Clark that essentially says that the human mind is a great prediction machine. And what it does is it predicts what the next sensory input will be. And then it error corrects. So your entire experience of identity and self and all those things is error correction. Uh, (laughs) Which is sort of an interesting view, right? Uh, I'm simplifying Andy Mm. Clark's quite advanced model. And it's a great book that that we can write in the show notes about. There's also another book uh, called The Predictive Mind that goes through that same kind of idea that the human mind is predictive. So, So it may be a better approximation. But we should still keep in mind that the notion of artificial intelligence at its heart is an analogy, a metaphor. It's not the same because a computer did not evolve. It's not biological. It's not embedded in an ecology. It's not something that is sort of dependent on a body. It doesn't live, does not die. So there's there's a whole set of things where intelligence, as we think about intelligence, human intelligence is not easily transferable to a computational machines but but we are very tempted to do the, the yeah the we term. anthropomorphize in a quite a large degree so, so we've got machines machines not machines. humans that are good at probabilistic prediction yes and then the other thing that's come in that i understand and i, I and i understand this is sort of why there's been a very strong for example french input into uh, the development of artificial intelligence, there's a lot around linguistics, a field that the French, in particular French academic world, are very, very strong on. How does this linguistics bit then fit into the pattern? It's, it's ma- maths, but it's also this element of language that seems to be critical to what's happening now. Understanding how language works is a core part of understanding how you predict language too. Mm. And so there are plenty of different linguistic and actually philosophical foundations for a lot of the stuff that's happening now. And one way which you can see this is that you're predicting tokens in some models to simplify. And what that means is that you're not predicting words, but you're predicting sets of words or even smaller sometimes, and you can sort of choose what that is. So you have to have a theory about language. And that theory of language is is sometimes connected back to things that Wittgenstein wrote or yeah. things that you find in in French linguistics. Um, I used to be a linguist, but now I'm not so sore. So there's like a lot of, of things that tr- trace back to the formal study of language there as well. Yeah, and and that's why we have. We, that's why a lot of the focus right now is on what's called large language models and what they do is and how they how they can take a very large data set how you can train them and then they can they can predict roughly what it is that uh, they what you expect when you ask a thing or when you make a query to the model so yeah. so it's it's um it's it's a really interesting field because it's turned out that uh, the people who invested heavily in their philosophy studies were right all along, which is very comforting to me. <laughs> what, did, what did you study, Nicholas? Uh, philosophy, oh, yeah, oh. excellently, Wittgenstein. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but 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 the interesting thing uh, is that that as we left the GoFi, the good old-fashioned AI, the logical formulation and formalization of human knowledge, and started to sort of look more at these predictive models. Uh, enormous breakthroughs were made and 
And one of the fascinating stories in all of this is that there were few people who dared oppose the orthodoxy that said that, you know, it's logical formalization, it's nothing else, and that kept working on things like neural networks, etc. And, and they, through enormous adversity, turned out to be right. So right. it's one of those interesting stories in the history of science where just keep plugging away on something you deeply believe in and keep exploring it and over time it may turn out that you're right. And so are those some of the same people that we're now seeing in the media quite a lot uh, often described as godfathers or godparents yes. of so AI a, who are now concerned about it. of the world, yeah. Joshua Bengiu and others. Yes, yeah. and, and I think that there is, and, and Jan LeCun, who I yeah. think you know as well. So there's, there's plenty of, of people who sort of started to think about alternative ways. Of, so they were unorthodox rebels in their time. Yes, and, and you know, quite uh, in many ways... Uh, the traditionalists stopped funding and all of those classical infighting things yeah. you can imagine. So so it, the story of artificial intelligence written as a sociological story will be quite interesting once once people really sort of look into that as well. Mm. And, you know, but here we are today and, and we, we have discovered something quite amazing. And that is that if you think about these models, if you think about artificial intelligence as predictive, you can do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And you end up with, you know, models that can give you fantastic imagery. You end up with models that can write essays. You end, end up with all different kinds of capabilities that we thought for a long time would remain within the human domain only. And I think that's why there's such an enormous amount, or that's one reason why there's such an enormous amount of, of focus in this particular space right now. Yeah. And a, a lot of those... Uh, sort of stunning new applications the common thread seems to be one of creativity by which I mean um, if in the old well the classic model of computing what you get out of the computer it, you can know by what you put in you program the computer to do something yes. uh, uh, if it's a banking system you hope that when you tell it to add <laughs> you don't up numbers, want it to be probabilistic you don't know <laughs> or creative it always adds the numbers up the same way yeah. uh, computers classically did that and obviously that then doesn't give you anything novel so if, if a computer that's programmed that way creates an essay <clears throat> the the essay is entirely a creature if you like of the programmer because the programmer said here's what i want in my essay yeah. and i think what we're seeing now and what's interesting is the essay that comes out or the image that comes out you couldn't go back to the code and explain and uh, and you couldn't credit the writer of the code with the creation of the essay if I can put it that way there's some some magic has happened between the person who wrote the code that they run on the computer that creates the instance of the AI and the output the image or the written text you can't just do a linear trace back from one to the other the causality has become much more complex right. and opaque yeah and i think you're absolutely right and so so in one way of thinking about this if you want to sort of put a put a finer point on it is say that we're we're building a technology that we have to study to understand how it works yeah. which is very different from how we used to build technology where we used to sort of have a blueprint say the technology will do this we would build it and then it would do what we said it would do in the blueprint and we would go like well that's very good that's sort of a rational technology now we build a technology where we we say we train it which is a really interesting term so we train this technology and then we check what it can do it can do all kinds of interesting things it can produce poems limericks it can produce essays it can produce images and we find out what it can do by using it which of course means that that you almost need to um, adopt sort of a, a biological approach yeah where you're sort of studying these things as you would study um or how you would study different kinds of ecologies and figure out, okay, what does this actually really do? And how does it behave? How does it fail? How does it um, react to different kinds of prompts, etc.? So you study it empirically mm. once you have designed it. Ooh, so, so just on this definition point then, I'm curious, one application, um, uh, self-driving cars. Yes. So self-driving cars, people will say, are sort of powered by AI-like technologies, but is it? If if you know we want the car to only behave in a certain way, uh, is is the AI that powers self-driving cars similar to the AI that creates a limerick or whatever? Is it is it given the same power of creative thought? And uh, it strikes me that the car you want to be much more predictable than you do the limerick writer. Yeah, no, I think that's 
<laughs> well, it's interesting because you want to to be predictable within a, a special problem domain. I yeah. Think. And <coughs> you, you absolutely do not want it to be a self-driving car. You want it to be a car that drives you where you want to go. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but it drives itself in some sense, I suppose. So, so to, what you're doing there is that you're, you're solving a problem by allowing the machine to, in different ways, predict situations that can occur and then act on those situations. And that's a, that's a, it's a slightly different case. But you're allowed to pre-program all the situations because no, you can't. you can't. So you're allowing it to use an, uh, analogous... Uh, experience it can say I know what to do in this situation therefore by analogy I should do which leads this to a really that. interesting question there's there's in the um, in the original compute sort of history of computers there is this woman Ada Lovelace yes who, um, who is sometimes referred to as the first programmer uh, yeah. and worked with Charles Babbage and others. And, and there is, in Turing's original paper, there is a, a series of objections to the idea that machines can think. And one of the objections that he specifically uh, mentions is Ada Lovelace's objection. And her objection would be, it can never do anything new. Yeah, and and when you see these fantastic photog, you know the photos, the images. When you read some of the texts that the AI models can produce, you go like, well, obviously it can do something new, but can it? Or is what it's doing still a variation on a theme? And that's a, that's a really interesting question, because if it's a variation on a theme, then sort of what you put in still matters for what comes out. And the question is, can we do anything else? Yeah. Is everything that we're doing, is creativity fundamentally a variation on a theme? Or do we have some kind of magical component to our creativity that allows us to create something entirely new? Can we can we do things in a different way than a machine can? And and all these questions have come to the fore now because uh, creativity has been the focus of many of these new inventions, and mm. new applications, and new models and new software. I mean, one that strikes me immediately is around language, where language is constrained by the physical human form. We can only make a certain range of sounds, and and different cultures around the world have organized different sets of sounds, but they're all constrained yeah. by the the physical being of a human. Computers don't have those constraints, do they? At the moment, we're teaching them how to how to operate language in a similar way to a human. But I guess that's one area where, left to their own devices, computers could come up with something that serves the function of language, but is utterly unrecognizable and entirely novel mm. uh, it could be something that a human could never use uh, you know, they, they'll find different ways to express themselves and 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 you see some commentary along mm. those lines when you see how computers and these modern um, <coughs> ai applications play games yes because some people who are masters at chess or go or whatever kind of game it could be sometimes they you can hear them say that you know it plays in a way that's almost alien yeah, because it you know we as human beings we have a particular way of solving these games or playing these games and we have accrued that way over years of experience centuries of experience and there's like a, a human way of playing chess whereas that's not necessarily the best way of playing chess and this this raises a really interesting question because humans have been exploring this enormous fitness landscape of solutions to problems and more than likely, most of our solutions are local maxima, but not global maxima. Right. So we have some kind of solution to a problem that we're very proud of, and we're staying there because we think that's a good solution and nobody has come up with anything better, and why bother? And what the machines now do is that they rove across this entire fitness landscape, and they can find either higher local maxima or even global maxima in the solution space. Yeah. And they can play chess in an entirely new way. They can do other things in an entirely new way. Now, the, the question there is, what does this mean for art? Can they do art in a different way? Is there a criteria for art that is akin to the criteria for chess? Can you, can you say that this was a well-played game? You won. This was a well-painted painting? You won. Yeah. Or what's the criteria for art? Is that fundamentally human? So there's a series of things here that, we, we sort of, that force us to rethink how we solve problems and how we learn. And at the heart of this, and this I think is actually important for how we think about regulating the technology, is that this, to this technology learns. It helps us learn and it learns. And as it learns, it can then predict different things. Yeah. And thinking about learning, the regulation of learning, 
quickly turns out to be a really interesting perspective. Not the only one, but an interesting perspective to apply when you talk about the regulation of this technology. Wow. And that, I think, again, there's something I've been thinking about in, around this question of agency, because it does seem to be, and here's the, the scenario um, that I was thinking about the other day, that you, I could imagine a scenario within which an individual is interacting with an artificial intelligence, so a program running on a machine, remember that, and the person who interacts with it uh, didn't intend the output to be produced, and the person who created it didn't intend for a certain kind of output to be produced, because the output that's produced is something that is illegal. Uh, and this is where the regulation absolutely you know, comes to the fore. And let's just take the various sort of examples, but one example would be terrorist propaganda. Illegal in many countries. Yeah. So somebody queries the AI and says, you know, tell me about ISIS or some terrorist group. And the person who programmed it has programmed this machine to scoop up all the information on the internet about terrorists. But the thing that the machine spits out would qualify as illegal propaganda for the terrorist group. Yeah. And now we need to deal with that. It's done something illegal. You can think of other instances. It could put out something which is an image that would be regarded as illegal uh child sex abuse material for example uh, again nobody intended that to happen the person didn't ask for it the programmer didn't intend for it to happen but it's done something illegal so this agency question then seems to me quite fundamental where to date absent the sort of ai piece we knew who was responsible uh somebody produces a, a terrorist propaganda we say who wrote this <laughs> you know yes. and who distributed it and you know how did that happen and we go and we find them. And in criminal law, you have this concept of mens rea, which is criminal intent. You go and you look for the controlling mind, the person who intended the bad thing to happen. Yeah. In this case, as I say, we've got an, potentially an innocent person engaging with the AI, a person who can prove their innocence, an innocent person who's created the AI. It's the AI, the machine, that has done the act which is regarded as illegal. So where do we assign the intent in that other than to the machine? Yes. Uh, and, and can you say that a machine has any kind of intent, criminal or otherwise, uh, independently of the other parties it engages with? Well, this is, we, we run into a series of complicated problems here. And, and they have to do also with, with the way that we use our language and how mm. we think about things like intent. Because we have this, we have, when we explain how something works, we have different stances, as the philosopher D.C. Dennett says. We have what is called the, uh, the sort of physicalistic stance, which is I can explain something by explaining it as a series of quantum phenomena collapsing in a certain fashion. We have the mechanistic stance, which is I can explain something as a machine and say this cog doesn't really work. And then we have the intentional stance, which is I explain something as if it was done by an intentional subject with agency. Hmm. And these different stances we apply in different ways. And typically when we talked about technical systems, we have applied mostly the mechanical stance. Yeah. It broke, it had a bug, you know, those kinds of things. But as these systems become more complex, they start to exhibit an extreme competence. And when they do, we are lured into the intentional stance. We start to describe these systems as intentional. And we go like, well, it didn't want me to get the right answer, or it wanted to do terrorist propaganda. And we use terms as want, it intended. Mm. We start to apply intentional stances, intentional explanations for these systems, although they have no intention in themselves. And I think that's really interesting because it creates another kind of problem that Dennett also pointed to, which is that we have evolved as human beings to believe that competence and comprehension are tightly coupled. When something is really good at something, we believe it understands what it does. Yes. But these because in a human, that would normally go together. They will always go together. Yeah. That's how we evolve. So we don't have a lower threshold for understanding when something that looks intentional actually isn't. Yes. Or when something that looks competent doesn't comprehend anything and so this will lead us into a series of traps where Dennis has pointed out and I think he's quite right that one of the greatest dangers and where we should think perhaps even about regulation is premature delegation to the machine because we confuse its competence with comprehension and whilst it's very good at doing uh, something that might be a type case when the exception comes in and a human being with comprehension would say oh it's an exception we can sort it uh, the machine won't 
Yes. And it will fail in unexpected ways because it lacks comprehension to complete its competence. And so I think there is there's something there. And going back to your question, then we can ask, is it really right to describe the system that produced this as intentional? Yeah. Can we say there's a locus of agency within the AI? And I think the answer to that question, if you look at all the systems we have today, is no. That's why if you look at any, uh, anyone who works on these systems, they have a long testing period where they try to eliminate unwanted behaviors. They test these systems. There is a lot of human feedback uh, that is used in order to try to eliminate certain kinds of responses. And you will see this if you use any modern chatbot. It will occasionally say, um, uh, as a chatbot, I can't answer that question. And exactly. that is often a sign that somebody has been trying to to fix the model, to take care of those kinds of dangerous behaviors, and then sort them out, and and I think there is there is a there is a really and that in itself suggests that uh, the makers of these models uh, feel a responsibility for them to mm. make sure that they don't behave in unexpected ways. And I think that's probably uh, that's probably where we are today. But you're also asking a bit of a science fictiony question, which is: Is there a point at which these systems can acquire so much agency? as for it to make sense for us also to have some kind of legal accountability attached to them. Yes. I, uh, and, it's, it's a, and, and I, think, I think what we're going to have to do is that when these systems move from being tools, which they are today, mostly, I would say we don't have anything that has true agency, that wants something, yes. right? We have tools. But when they move into being agents or more, have more agency, then at that point we need to start looking at what were they actually empowered to do by the person who used them? And we will then have to look at legal models that are more uh, based on delegation. So for example, we, we have tons of legal ideas about how to think about delegated responsibility in our legal systems. One example is a parent and a child. Yes. So a parent has absolute responsibility for a child, uh, except for some edge cases. Uh, and another example is the delegated ability to enter into contract in a company, yes. where you delegate different kinds of powers. So you can imagine that one interesting piece of legislation in the future, or regulation in the future, will be saying that, okay, what kinds of power will these agents have, and how does it have to be delegated for the responsibility to go back up to the person that delegated it. Because if you go to a company, for example, you can delegate some things, but some things boil up to the top. Yeah. And for a parent saying that, you know, it's it, when your child breaks something, you can't say, never seen them before. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you might want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's like a whole system of delegate, delegation rules, delegation regulation, that I think becomes applicable the closer you become to the agent level. But I wonder if we'll go the full, there are some people who argue we should go to the full sort of do the full thing and say we should have legal personhood for these. And yeah. If they're not behaving, then you know there is the option of of erasing them, yeah. of doing something like that. But today, that's still quite. It seems like a. It seems it still seems like a distant solution. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm as we're discussing this, I'm getting more and more nervous about the idea of anthropomorphizing what is yes. a machine. Yeah. It's code running on a machine. Yes. And we've, you know, the further we get away from that, the more problematic it is. And you say science fiction, yeah, we start thinking, do androids dream of electric sheep yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. and Blade Runner replicants and all that sort of stuff. And the, the, you get into all, all kinds of trouble, I think, once you start treating a machine as a, uh, in, in some ways, a human. Yeah. Um, but there are people arguing for robots' rights, uh, yeah. seriously thinking that that's a good idea. I, and the argument against, of course, is that there's, a, there's an enormous devaluation of human rights to argue that robots should have rights equal to or even akin to those that humans have. Yeah. And that does worry me because, again, some of the, at the moment we're talking about this because a lot of apocalyptic talk about you know machines running riot and things. And that strikes me as that's almost people assuming we're moving into a world where they don't operate the kill switch. You know, every machine, if if you want to turn chat GPT off, you know, somebody at OpenAI could push a button and chat GPT is turned off, literally. I mean, that's the, at the moment all those machines are uh, uh, living on computers powered by electricity. And if you pull the electricity out, that machine ceases to exist. And it worries me that, yeah, some of the apocalyptic thinking is almost assuming that the machine's will be running independently and no one can control them. And that, 
again, that I, I, makes me uncomfortable. It should be a world in which machines are controlled by humans. Yes, uh, and I think there's a ton of research that goes into to AI safety and AGI governance to figure out exactly how to make sure that that's the case. Yeah. And I think with today's models, you're right. Uh, today's models are not necessarily the kinds of models that will run amok. Um, the, the, there, there's a, there are nuances here that are mm. getting lost in the apocalyptic um, sort of discourse. And I think one of the things that the more reasonable people are saying is, look, if these systems continue to evolve at the pace they're currently evolving, at some point we should expect them to be complex enough to perhaps copy themselves from one server to another. Yeah. And at that point, we might want to think about how they proliferate, just like we think about computer viruses, for example. And uh, if they're also uh, competent, very competent, without comprehension, they might do different kinds of things as they copy themselves from server to server yeah. because they are, in some sense, misaligned. They have, you know, we ask them to go... Uh, buy something for us and they couldn't buy it and now they're going to do everything they can to buy it and so they disappear out on the internet and they wreak havoc in different ways and so what we what was sort of the 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 right way to approach the as you say apocalyptic discourse is to think about how we build systems today that allow us to retain control how we and that is that is what is usually referred to as responsible or trustworthy ai in, in policy speak but yeah. the intention is to ensure that we have a human-centric perspective here. And there's tons of interesting theories about how to do that and how to make sure that, that AIs don't assume that we want something and then turn us all into paper clips, like yeah. Nick Bostrom said. Yeah, yes, and and uh, I remember one of, I was recently in a meeting where Stuart Russell had this really interesting theory where he said the only way we can, or one way we can do this, is to make sure that uh, as machines become more and more intelligent, uh, we make them less sure what we want. <laughs> so they become more attentive so more yeah. sort of like is that true is that what you want sort of <laughs> I think there's some interesting questions around the underlying infrastructure in there because you describe it you, you know in some ways um, the original internet worms were yeah they were exactly were code that was written to seek to replicate itself and do whatever it could to replicate itself and we do need a maybe. Is you slide into intentional language there? It did whatever it could to replicate. Well, it was designed. Yes, it was. Yes. Pro, it was programmed, programmed to to replicate. replicate. Yes. Uh, that was its instruction. Off it went and followed the instruction it was yeah. given. Yeah, there was no intention on its part. <laughs> um, but again, yeah, you might end up with an infrastructure. So part of it is compartmentalizing as a part of the defense might be. I want to make sure that there is always a kill switch yeah. for every part of it so that, you know, I can isolate just as you would with a virus, actually. Yeah. I can isolate the virus and destroy the virus yeah, and you, and without you, destroying the entire body, uh, which is the problem that we have. And yeah. so we want to and that, that may lead to a different. Yes. Yeah, so a a less open computing, global computing environment in which you well, for, make for sure you can compile. For a subset of systems that are, are really powerful, that yeah. might be the right. It's like we have only a, I mean, you can think about this as, as what is sometimes called air gapping, that you mm. develop these systems uh, in an unconnected way. And you can sort of try to figure out how to do that. There, there's a lot of theories and ideas and a lot of really good research that goes into thinking about how you can self safely develop very complex and capable systems. Yeah. And, and if we just back away a moment from the apocalyptic discourse and we ask ourselves, should we be concerned that we're developing more capable and complex systems and think about how we can still govern complex and capable systems well, the answer is an, like, an obvious yes. No. No? Yeah, no, 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 no. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because no, no. we want that. The, right? the answer is no. But if you layer, <laughs> if you sort of layer all yeah. of the AI discussion yeah. on top of this, then you end up with all of these these sort of dystopian scenarios. But I, I do think there's a real, there's a real uh, sort of at the heart of this a very sort of theoretical from a regular we have a regulation yeah. perspective, right? From a regulatory perspective, if you build something that's highly complex, extraordinarily capable, there's probably an argument for thinking hard about how that particular system is regulated. Absolutely. And I just want to take you back to something you said a little while ago on agency, which, which struck me as really interesting, which is this notion of um, a sort of corporate responsibility. Mm. And I, it brought to mind the thought, again, this will anthropomorphize it, but that's not my intention. But in a corporation, if you have an employee that does something bad, yeah, 
that there are well-established mechanisms for trying to understand whether the employee's a rogue employee and the employer shouldn't be held liable or whether it was something that the employer should have predicted and or encouraged or is somehow complicit in. And we we can look at that. We can look at the bad thing and we can try and assign responsibility. Mm. And it isn't, it's, it's almost, it's contextual. It's case by case. It's not that you can say every time an employee does something wrong, it's always the employer's fault, nor would you say you know, every time uh, uh, they do something wrong, it's not the employer's fault. You have yeah. to go in and look at the specifics. And now you can imagine, you can extend your analogy. You can say, okay, what about if this company has um, used a um, auditor for hire or somebody that was um, uh, hired in from another company? Yes. Um, is that company then responsible if that person goes rogue? And that's how you can see across the value chain of uh, the artificial intelligence system how different parts might have uh, different kinds of responsibility for what happens in the system. Yeah. And so you can expand that analogy to think hard about what it means um, to to sort of assign the locus of agency uh, well. We do need to assign, I mean, there is a difference, obviously, and again, we're thinking about this in the context of the online safety bill, that um, you can't send an AI to prison no. or fine it directly. You can find its owner but you can't find it so a lot of the tools that we use in law to hopefully dissuade people from bad behavior and or send a message to the rest of society yes. there is bad behavior those tools are not available but but some of the so certainly the the notion of assigning responsibility is there but for your regulation you're going to have to think what the punishments are yes. and, and the punishments the schedule of punishments may be quite different i think for an ai typically it would be retraining so it doesn't it's not again it's not a human we're not punishing the ai but we are saying that the owner of the ai must carry out certain functions in order to be from a regulatory point of view entitled to keep that ai going mm. i'm saying in some instances that if the behavior is really bad and repeated and doesn't seem to be getting fixed the solution the regulatory solution is effectively a death sentence for the ai the the, the person the, well, the employer is going to be told you must turn it off you know you yes. just can't have it and, and i mean it, and it goes back a little bit into to sort of um, a discussion about uh we, we currently have an up and coming discussion in the european union about product viability um, yeah. And it goes a little bit back to sort of how any product works. Uh, there's an intended set of behaviors that a product has. And if it has a set of behaviors that are not intended, you have to look at them and see if they're harmful. And if those behaviors are harmful, you uh, either hold somebody responsible or you prohibit those sets of behaviors. And if those set of behaviors still persist, then you have rules of liability. Yeah. And so I think this is this is something that we'll have to think hard about because instead of, of we will look, we will be trying to understand the kinds of behaviors a system can give rise to, uh, engage in, and, and then classify these behaviors in different ways. And what we'll say is that that behavior is okay, that behavior is not so okay. And, and it will be really interesting to see how we do this, because traditionally, um, we have, we have now been very careful, actually. If you look at many of the models that are out there, they're quite careful to almost to the point of where some people say they're boring. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get it to say anything exciting. Um, and, and there is an argument for, for thinking through how you train a model like this so that it can, so it can exhibit um, some uh, interesting but problematic behaviors. But the, a favorite example that I saw recently uh, online that I thought was really interesting was, should a language model be able to simulate um, Adolf Hitler's argument for uh, a greater Germany mm. so that kids in school can argue with and see the flaws in Hitler's reasoning or not. Wow. Uh, and that's such an interesting, I, I remember when I read the example, I was like, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's hard. Yeah. Right, because you wouldn't like to have Hitler in your classrooms, obviously. But on the other side, imagine if we had a generation who grew up and saw the flaws and could see the weaknesses uh, in those. Arguments. As a project, have to say Hitler won elections. Yes. That's what makes yes. me nervous. Yes, it's there like, you, go, yeah, yeah. you know, it wasn't he. And the example is provoking. And, yeah, yeah. And, and you can sort of, and you can say, oh, we don't want that. 
Yeah. We don't want the models to be able to simulate. And then and then you have really interesting services so, like Characters AI that are simulating historical and fictional characters. And you can sort of instantiate any character and have a conversation with them. One of them is the, the guy in uh, Tony Soprano. Oh, so right. So you can have a conversation yeah. with him. Uh, is that problematic? Yeah. Uh, for, a, you know, for a fourth grader having a conversation with... With a nice gangster. With uh, a nice gangster and yeah. teach you the rules. So, so how... So this is... These are the kinds yeah. of behaviors, the kinds of things that we will have to think so, through. So let me dig into one aspect, which has come up a lot in the debate, which is the misinformation yeah, yeah. piece. So as you say, the AIs are careful. So I could imagine a, a mainstream company will release something that can produce images and videos, but will be very careful to say, we're going to stop anyone doing um, faked, deep fake videos for political purposes. And they'll program in a list of all the names of people that you couldn't possibly sort of impersonate, things like that. Could somebody else take the same technology who's not reputable, uh, so your Russian bot farm or whatever, how, how easy is it for them to go, aha, I'm just going to copy that technology and create an instance of it without the guardrails and then I'm going to pump out the propaganda? Then this, this is a hard question. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard because it also touches on something that, that, is, uh, that, is, um, that is not entirely easy to sort of sort through, and that is the open sourcing of models. So if you open source a model, anyone can download it, anyone can build on it, anyone can tweak or fine tune it in different ways. Then you can, of course, also build a model that's intended for misinformation or intended for some kind of other kind of purpose. And it can sort of pump out politically targeted misinformation in different ways. And, and you know, there are many uh, advantages of open sourcing as well, because it could be a great way to get things out and build new kinds of really good applications and draw on the sort of the, the, the innovation capability of the entire ecosystem. So there arguments for and against here to be clear uh, but the kinds of control that you have if you provide uh, your service through an API or through sort of a, um, a service online and the kinds of control you have in the open source are radically different and mm. in the latter case you don't have any guarantees that it cannot be used in the way that you envision so I, I think that's something that's a debate that we haven't fully sort of engaged in and and we're sometimes lazily I think equating open source of AI models with open source of operating systems yeah. where they're they're really kind of different because when you think about open sourcing and operating system it was because you would have access to the code you can build on it you could sort of figure out how it works all of those different things you really can't do that in the same way with a model if it's open sourced and sometimes we even talk about this as democratization of ai and there are a lot of people who argue that we should democratize ai we should release all of these models openly uh, but the counter argument that you hear from others is that democratization doesn't mean free access to it means access that allows for deliberative decision making and that's different yeah and so where do we so this is a live debate where people are, are there there's no consensus around this and it's really hard but i want to i want to bring your misinformation question back to something else that i think is being missed in this debate and as we focus a lot on the production of misinformation and we focus a lot on the elimination of misinformation we want to sort of remove it we spend far too little time thinking about how to create an authoritative source Yes. And that's the thing that, that sort of is being neglected in the debate. How do we recreate authoritative sources online so you know that this is a more credible source than this? That's really hard, but it's something that we should spend much more time thinking about. And along those lines, most of the companies that are now thinking about uh, how to stop deepfakes and how to make sure that you can understand that something was generated by an AI are looking into things like watermarking yeah. or provenance detection things like that that sort of reintroduce the notion of authority into what is a flat information space online and i think that's something that if we can get that right we can sort of not just focus on the production of misinformation but the production of qualitative information authoritative information and figure out how we can get to a point where there are some recognized sources that are authoritative online our problem is not that there's so much bad information. Our problem is that the good information we have is not recognized as good information. So Yeah. I mean, it's making me think that we're focused on, if you like, the offensive use of AI, but less on the defensive use. Yes. Put it that way, which, because as you, again, as you explain that, it makes me think that, look, TikTok's AI-driven algorithm should be able to do exactly what you're saying if they if they chose to and distinguish authoritative from 
you know, non-authoritative sources. So maybe it's not even, I mean, there are old, techno old technologies like watermarking and putting something into the source or dare I say that it comes from a particular brand of, <laughs> uh, of news media. Yeah, and yeah, we have struggled yeah. to do that. But there are other ways of doing it where your phone and or the service that you use uses AI-driven technology uh, to, to keep up with the AI-produced content and filter it for you according to a set of rules. And question yeah. who sort of defines those rules. But if you want to take out all of the bad, deep, fakey type stuff. It seems to me that having that defensive tool in your device is going to be the best way to do that. Yeah, I think so. And, and also figuring out ways in which we can ourselves impart authority on a source that we think is the right one. It's not a clean solution because some people tend to polarize and say, I trust this, I trust that. But there, but there should be a way. If you remember PGP, yeah, I'm dating myself, but PGP, you, you could sign each other's signatures. And somebody who had a signature was signed by a lot of people um, uh, had a very credible signature because a lot of people said this person is the person they say they are. So you could accrue credibility over time. And credibility systems is something that we should spend more time thinking about. How can you make sure that you accrue credibility over time? And credibility is not the same as a like. So you have to figure out a way Sorry. in which you weight it. And so somebody who is more credible might have a greater weight in giving credibility to somebody else. And you can think a little bit about how you weight a system like this. Yeah. But I think we, I think at one necessary thing, if we don't want the information space to descend into noise, is to figure out how we create networks of authority, of authoritative sources throughout the information space. Yes, yeah, we'll get there. And there are people thinking about that. I know there are sort of content yeah. provenance measures. I say, if I sound a little skeptical, it's, it's just that <laughs> it's sort of from a political point of view, it's understanding that people have to want the authoritative material. Yeah. Or, yeah. or either they have to actively choose it or the platforms have to choose it for them. This is this and, is a paternalistic problem. Right? Yeah, and so you've got that challenge. I think there's a lot of, lot of issues around choices that individuals are making in the information space yeah. and and the assumptions that we sometimes make as policymakers and regulators about what they want yes. <laughs> which may not accord with reality and this and this is hard because at some point you 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 um, you have to figure out if you trust people to be citizens and give them the agency to decide what they believe is credible and then draw on that credibility assignment and use that as your source or if you want a more formal authoritative um, uh, assessment. Yeah. It's a, it reminds me of, of, um, of the Eurovision Song Contest, where there's like the audience voice and then there's the jury. That's right, yeah, yeah. it's a very <laughs> and different... You, and you, yeah. almost, you almost think that's sort of what you are going to end up with, because yeah. the jury is sort of some kind of formal... They say this particular thing is right, and then the audience says something else. Luckily, the jury was right this word yeah. very much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the audience generally says, "Do we like the people from that country or not?" And yes, they vote accordingly. <laughs> and, and 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 you know they will like different things. Yeah. But but you can imagine things like that models where you sort of separate out different kinds of credibility functions to work. But then yeah. at the end of the day, you have to want to learn what is true as an individual to learn what is true. That's yeah. never going to change. So it's bringing me back to we are moving into an environment uh, in all sorts of dimensions where if traditional interaction was human to human and then evolved to human to human using computers, but essentially it was still the human mediated, mediated yeah. via computer to an environment. And I'm going to use matrix language this time, agent, agent yes. Smith. And so yes. we're now we're now in a world where it's human to human, but in a world where there are lots of agents. Yes. Uh, and those agents can be working in all sorts of different dimensions. They're going to be agents in politics, machine-based agents that are, I think are, do feel quite different from, you know, the classic bot farm was a human sitting there creating yeah. a thousand personalities on a social media platform. Well, that, that you know, was still deceptive, but it was, a, I think, different, somehow qualitatively different from creating an agent which goes off and, and sort of does its own thing. Yeah. And they're all, there's this sort of world we now live in, a world sort of populated by these agents. And then from a regulated question, figuring out who those agents are responsible to or who has co-responsibility for those agents. Yes. If those agents are doing things we don't like, uh, how can we... How can we punish that or control it or manage it, whatever? How do they identify as agents is yeah. one very basic thing. Yeah. It seems clear that an agent that is an agent should represent itself as 
an agent. Except the bad ones won't. <laughs> the ones with ill intent won't. So, yeah. And then that's something yeah. that we should actively think about Which how a... we could regulate. And so, yeah. so there's, there's a lot. And, and I think that the sort of the, the large language models, uh, which are the sort of focus of a lot of the regulatory discussion today, and it's important to remember that AI is so much more, right? Yeah. Think about AI for science, where you can do things like fusion or protein folding, yeah. so much more. But, but those language models are not quite agents yet. Because yes. you're prompting them, you're putting things in, you're getting things back. But agents is not that far away. And I think it's good for us to have a discussion now about how we feel about the delegation to agents across different possible use cases. Yeah. And as regulators, how do we extend existing notions of regulation to a world where those agents exist? Yeah. Uh, if we still have the same intention. So, for example, stopping the distribution of illegal content which societies deem to be so harmful that we're willing to prosecute a person if they do it how do we now extend that to a world in which it's agents doing the illegal activity yeah, yeah. and then tracing responsibility and accountability in different ways yeah and i think that there is a lot of will on the behalf of uh, the behalf of sort of researchers to figure out how this could work in a way that's safe so who's figuring this out? Who's most advanced? Uh, the EU's got an AI Act. Is that, is that thinking in these terms? Where's that going? Well, it's interesting. The EU AI Act started out as a fairly principled piece of legislation where you looked at the sort of different kinds of risk categories. And yeah. then uh, it, it suffered that unfortunate fate that <laughs> legislation sometimes suffers of becoming very popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it had some more than 3,000 amendments. And people were sort of just figuring out new things to put in. The into. Christmas tree effect. I and, want to hang my shiny bauble on this legislation. And, 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 you know, it was also in Christmas season because then ChatGPT came yeah. and all of these different technologies exploded. And that coincided with the legislation going into a set of negotiations. So, so the legislation happened at the very nexus of the technological evolution. And they happened together and everyone was trying to, to scramble to figure out how to include all of these different things into the legislation. And, and I think that is probably not always a good thing for a legislation when that happens. Because there's so much that we need a little bit of distance and, and sort of time to understand. So that if we were just throw it in, like... Generative AI is a term that everyone yeah. uses now, or or foundation models, or we throw new concepts in. These concepts might not just have gelled enough for us to figure out how they apply in a regulatory space. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the trilogues unfold and where sort of the conceptual structure ends up. Then a lot will depend on the implementation agencies, and a lot will depend on the standards that need to be uh, implemented on top of the AI Act. Yeah. So I think that will be a really it will be a really so you are playing the usual game of three-dimensional chess. Uh, <laughs> yes. I always think of it as like in the Star Wars uh, uh, series where they have the three-dimensional chess that they're playing on the yes. Millennium Falcon and you've got yes. the commission and the council yes. and the parliament <laughs> all... <laughs> Just, and since you're talking about Star Wars, I think there's another thing that applies, and I will not explain this, but I will just note that at some point in Star Wars, somebody says, sometimes you have to let the Wookiee win. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry. Definitely <laughs> um, so they're doing that. And then in the US, I notice everyone's queuing up to kind of go, and we need regulation right now. So of course, the United States Congress is going to have a bill next year, isn't it? What's, what's uh, your, the baseline expectation for the US Congress is that 3 to 6% of the bills introduced on the floor are actually turned into legislation. Right. So. so the question is, will there be legislation before the election? And, uh, you know, I'm not a betting man, but I, I would say I, I think that the more likely evolution is that you'll see the administration put forward a series of proposals that can go um, as industry standards yeah. through NIST, for example, the National Institute for, uh, I think, Standards and Technology, I want to say. Uh, they have something called the Risk Management Framework that is really well done. It's quite robust. And I think the application of that will be a core part of how the U.S. approaches this. There's also going to be a lot of work, I think, within the White House on figuring out what voluntary commitments could look like. There was yeah. a White House meeting a bit earlier where that was a discussion, and I think we'll hear more on that in the coming weeks. So 
So more like the EU code of conduct, code of practice type model more, where more you get everybody model, to sign yes. up to agree to certain things. Yes, more that, I think. And, yeah. and, and to some degree, I think this is helpful because yeah. it, it sort of gives us several different models. And then you have Canada that is taking a framework law and then relies on local, um, or not local, relies on implementation of that framework law, which will be a bit more flexible uh, than, than the European uh, AI Act. And you also see, interestingly, some tendencies in the European Union to, to worry a little bit about the lead times because yeah. the EU AI Act comes into force 25-26. And why the Italians are running ahead and banning things altogether. Aren't they? Well, no. I think that it's why, why we hear uh, talk about an AI pact from the European Union uh, now as well. Right. Sort of the idea of a code of conduct that could, yeah. be, that could be balanced with and actually interact with the US one. So you, you could get a very good outcome, which could be a transatlantic framework. Yeah. Uh, but people will tell me I'm an optimist if I say yeah. that's what I think. Always good happen. to be an optimist. <laughs> So we'll see. Yeah. And, and the, the Italian example is interesting too because it raises a lot of questions that we should return to in a, in a later yeah. episode uh, about data protection and uh, AI yeah. and how to think about that generally uh, in terms of what you can and cannot do. And there's a series of questions there that the, the Italian DPA um, felt they needed answers to and so they banned ChatGPT yeah. much to the chagrin of their entrepreneurs and there was sort of open letters and stuff. Uh, and then uh, when ChatGPT had, or when OpenAI, the company behind, had made a couple of uh, changes, uh, they reintroduced it or let it come back into the market. Mm. And there's a, there's a question about data protection and about a lot of other legislative yeah. frameworks here that actually has to do with the fact that we did not have this technology when we shaped this legislation. And what is now proving to be true, uh, no matter what you think about the actual realities, is that this legislation was not technology neutral. Yes. It was, it was lauded as technology neutral at the time, but it certainly wasn't. Because yeah. the way this technology is designed and the way it works is not predicted within the legislative frameworks. Nobody that sort of, that when the GDPR was put in place, people didn't go, and this will deal really well with large language models. Yeah. Nobody knew. And it shows the limits of technology neutrality in the time when there is fast-paced technological development. Yeah, I think there's one bit of that that I remember, I think, think is sort of is in some ways relevant, is we did ask occasionally, if a machine reads something and a human never sees it, what does that mean from a privacy data protection point of view? And we actually think about it in terms of routers, internet routers, yeah. that by definition have to see IP addresses and can't ask for your consent. <laughs> and so is it violating privacy that the stuff goes through that consent? And I think a lot of those questions are the ones that roll over here. If, an, if a, again, a little bit anthropomorphizing. Yeah. If an AI is merely a machine and it processes some data, do we consider that no privacy violation has occurred and there's no need to ask for consent and things? Or if we've anthropomorphized it, we now say, ah, oh, but the AI read the data, it must go back and ask consent from the originator of the data. Yes. It's a, it's a, it is one of those the intentionality question becomes a, quite acute. Yeah. If you believe that data protection applies at the moment of intentionality, which I think yeah. is also questionable, yeah. a lot of people will say it's processing. That's the term, which means that the routers are for sure uh, processing and you have to find an exception in the catalogue of exceptions to allow the routers to do what they exactly. do. Exactly, yeah. And we have this all these notions of natural person. I wonder if we'll introduce yes. in the EU law, introduce an unnatural person, maybe. That's <laughs> an but, artificial person. Artificial person. An unnatural person sounds likely. It will be yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so you're right. So I think there are a bunch of areas that we're going to come back to. So there's the data protection questions that yes. are big. There's the copyright and intellectual property questions, which are huge, huge and are rearing their heads. Again, the law, I don't think... When we, it was designed, it was all about people copying and stealing and reinterpreting and, re, you know, uh, taking content and not about machines yeah. doing it and uh, to remove. And, and then the third area is the one I've touched on a bit today about the, the safety aspect, the illegal speech. Uh, yes. You know, in all of those instances, we've, we've made an assumption that it's humans violating privacy. It's humans violating people's intellectual property rights. It's humans distributing illegal speech. Uh, and we've created laws that are very much targeted at regulating the humans that might do that and the platforms that permit them to do it. Yes. In all of them, I think there are novel questions for when you have agents who could be violating privacy 
violating intellectual property rights and uh, distributing illegal speech, but are not human. And then there's a huge catalogue of AI-relevant um, things that we should talk about, like what does bias mean and where does bias occur in a system? Yeah. We should think about jobs displacement. And what do we think about labour market effects? Should regulation be applied to govern those effects? There are questions around autonomous weapons. How should, do we think about these in international relations and international treaties? There are questions about um, the autonomy of individuals. Now, if you assume that this agent really gives you good advice, and it gives you such good advice that you keep following it, because when you do, you're happy. Yeah. At this point, what happens with your autonomy? And, and is there a problem here if you learn to be more like the predicted model of yourself that the agent has? <laughs> so you become more and more of that predicted model because being that predicted model feels good. You still have free will, but as the Polish science fiction writer Stanislav Lem pointed out, is what you'll be left with is the free will to make slightly worse choices. Yes, so you're no longer training the agent, the agent is training you. And how do you know? Yeah. How do you know? And these are questions that are really interesting and actually no longer theoretical or science fiction -y. So we have to start these dialogues, talk about these things yeah. and, and, and figure it out. So, so I'm quite sure we can because the upside here is, let's be clear, the upside here is curing disease. The upside yeah. is finding ways of doing fusion that will reduce energy costs to zero. The upside is advancing science by hundreds of millions of years in a few human years now. Yeah. So figuring out how this works is going to be really important because this is a technology that I think we, we um, if we play it right, can be enormously impactful. So I'm just thinking it's, it's just as well that we've figured out the regulation of social media now with all of the bills, the Digital Service Act online service, to give us plenty of time to talk about all this new to stuff. To sort out these This things. new yes, stuff. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Excellent. And we hope to have you with us for our next session.